we trust, O oh Lord, that this has been our prayer. And so we ask again, humbly, boldly, sincerely, that you would breathe on us, breath of God. Fill us, fill this weak preacher, fill this, your listening people with life anew, that we may love what thou dost love, and that we would do what thou wouldst do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you study certain passages of Scripture, they're difficult because they have perplexing questions or they're strange and unfamiliar. Maybe they're difficult in the original languages or they pose manifold theological problems or they're just unusual in their imagery, maybe something from Ezekiel or the minor prophets or some apocalyptic section in Revelation. And then there are other stories which can be difficult because they are so familiar, like this one from Daniel chapter 6. Let's play a little word association. I'm going to say two words, and then you respond with three words. Daniel and the lions. Wow, you are well-taught people. That's right. Most of us have studied Daniel and the lion's den. We have plush dolls. We have seen the cartoon version, maybe one played by computerized vegetables. We know the slogan, dare to be a Daniel. World Magazine will have their Daniel of the year. We know this story. We love this story. But is it possible? We are so familiar with this story, so comfortable with good old Daniel and those cute little lions in the lion's den that this chapter no longer speaks to us in the way that it ought that we no longer are challenged and comforted in the way that we should be. Well, even though it may be a familiar story to most of us, I hope and my prayer has been that God would teach us a few new things as we look at these familiar verses. Follow along as I read from Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius... You could say Darius, Darius, potato, potato, we'll say Darius, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed 
that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed." And the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O oh, king. I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. For the sixth time in six chapters, we have this same basic pattern with a few variations along the way. There is a problem. 
And then God's people pass the test, and then there is a promotion. And we see it here again. Verse 28 ends, and Daniel prospered. Now, as we turn the page, literally, in the weeks ahead to the remaining six chapters, we're going to see a very different kind of book as we move from these familiar stories to some passages that are a bit more difficult to interpret and various apocalyptic visions and prophetic images that are given to Daniel. But here in the first six chapters, we've seen a relatively familiar pattern in some of the most beloved stories in the Bible. There's a pressure on God's people to conform they withstand the pressure, and in the end, they are rescued, and they prosper, and they are promoted. We've looked at many of these as acts or scenes, and we could do that here as well. But I want to take a different look, and instead of seeing chapter 6 as a series of acts or scenes, I want us to look at the various characters and what they teach us about God, about faith, and about ourselves. There are five characters in this story, the last of which perhaps you haven't seen, but is certainly there. So here's the first character. We have a foolish king, a foolish king. Now, who was this man? We meet in verse 1, Darius. A little bit of history from the ancient Near East. Cyrus became king of the Persians in 559 B.C., Ten years later, he had led a successful revolt against the Medes and then later united the Medes and the Persians. Those are two different but very similar people groups in Iran. Cyrus fought successfully as the leader of the Medes and the Persians against Greek forces, and then he turned his attention to Babylon in 540 B.C. and sent his commander there, and we read about that in chapter 5 where they overran the city when Belteshazzar was the regent in Babylon. There is no independent record of this man named Darius or Darius the Mede. You notice in 628, the end of the chapter, there's mention, and we'll come back to this and how we might translate this differently in verse 28, but there there's reference to Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. If you look back at the beginning of the book in chapter 121, it says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So there it only mentions Cyrus. And then if you go to chapter 10, verse 1, it references in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So chapter 1, chapter 10 only mentions Cyrus, but here in chapter 6, it mentions Darius and Cyrus. So what do we make? We know a, a lot about Cyrus from ancient history, but not about Darius. Some people have said, well, this is obviously just a fictionalized character. And those of us who believe in the inspiration of Scripture cannot settle for that reason. There's everything about this which has the air of historical record and authenticity that the author is not giving us some sort of court fable, but is giving us history. So who is Darius? There are two possible and plausible explanations. One is to think that Darius is a royal title that was given to someone else. Maybe this general named Gobrius who served as regent until Cyrus took residence. So Darius might have been a name that was given as a kind of title to the king like there was a pharaoh 
wasn't that the first name was Pharaoh, but he was given the name for Egyptian rulers, various kinds. So maybe this was given to his general until Cyrus came and took residence, or many scholars believe that Darius and Cyrus may be the same person. And there's several strands of tantalizing evidence to suggest that might be the case. We know, as I just mentioned, that kings often would have personal names, and then they would have throne names. Think even today with the popes, for example, they have whatever their name was, and then if they become the pope, they choose some grand papal name in the lineage of John or John Paul or Francis or Benedict. They have some royal sort of name, and so it was in the ancient world. We know that Cyrus's mother was a Mede. There's an interesting reference to Darius uh, likely a different Darius in Nehemiah 12:22, known as Darius the Persian. And so perhaps that was meant to distinguish between a later ruler who was the Persian and this Cyrus who may have been known as Darius the Mede. We also have, if you look at chapter 531, the end of the last chapter, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. We know from a, other historical sources that Darius was about 60 years old when he came to reign. And so that would fit very, or not Darius, but rather Cyrus. So it would fit well with the chronology of Cyrus. And then we have, interestingly, a similar grammatical construction in 1 Chronicles 5.26. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. It says, so the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pilassar, king of Assyria. Similar grammatical construction where there it's giving not the names of two different rulers, but two different names of the same ruler. In Greek, for example, the word and is the Greek word chi, which Greek students learn can be translated in a variety of ways. It can mean and, it can mean even, it can mean that is. And so it would be a perfectly legitimate translation at the end of chapter 6 to say, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We can't be certain, but there are several good reasons to think that Darius and Cyrus may be the same individual. Darius is portrayed here in chapter 6 as a well-meaning but rather weak, overly self-protective, easily manipulated king. At least he was in this circumstance. His officials ironically assure him, you have all exalted power. When in fact the officials are the ones who are pulling the strings to get him to do exactly what they want to do. Wouldn't be the first time that someone appealed to a ruler's sense of nobility and worth to get what they want, to flatter him. You notice it's 30 days. Maybe he figured, well, you know, 30 days isn't going to be too disruptive. They weren't eager to make life impossible for their subjects. That's difficult to enforce. But 30 days might be for a new ruler in town, a nice, good show of faith. Give you all, th just worship me for 30 days. You know, I'm just a sort of a monthly deity. Don't seek out any of your gods. You notice it also says, or make petition to any man. Now, that would be difficult. You see in verse 7 what you can't ask 
a person for a loaf of bread or to, to borrow a hammer. Well, when it says any man, it's likely thinking of any of the priests, any of the mediators. You can't seek out any religious help for any gods, for any religious officials. You can only seek petition to me, to the king. And he, he may have figured that 30 days, it's a bit of an inconvenience, but really we have lions over here. Surely you can manage to just pray to me for a month and no one actually is going to have to find their way into the lion's den. Now you notice that Darius is very upset, verse 14, when he learns that he's been tricked and Daniel has willingly fallen into their trap because Daniel is an old man. He served faithfully through many administrations and various kingdoms, and apparently Darius appreciates this man, Daniel, and isn't eager to see this man who has such a sparkling, indeed a perfect reputation in the kingdom to be thrown to the lions. So he's absolutely distressed. It's a lesson for us, even if you do have the officials who like you, even if you do get the rulers on your side, as the psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes. Even when they like you, sometimes they're powerless or they can be sellouts or easily manipulated. They are fickle beings. The picture here of Darius with all of his might and power is of a rather helpless man. Think about it. Daniel... We hear nothing of his sleepless night with the lions. Now, we don't know exactly what it was, but we hear nothing of his consternation. Perhaps Daniel and the lions had quite a good night's sleep where the king in his palace with all of his comfy pillows, sleep would flee from his eyes. I love this line from Sinclair Ferguson, better to be a child of faith in a den of lions than a king in a palace without faith. How true it is. For all the world, you would have said, who is the blessed one? Who is the real rich ruler here? Well, it's this man in his palace, and he can't even sleep at night. Better to be Daniel, the old man of faith, sleeping among the lions. We see a foolish king. Second, we see a jealous, what shall we call it, bureaucracy. A jealous bureaucracy. They're called satraps. It's just another word for a governor in the Persian Empire. Now, if you may remember a little bit of Bible trivia from Esther 1.1, it says in the time of Xerxes, there were 127 provinces in the Persian Empire, which would make sense that there are 120 satraps here. So these are the governors over the various provinces in the Persian Empire. And then in this bureaucratic structure, you have, verse 2, over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Suffer no loss means that the king would not have any harm done to him, and most likely this is concerned with fiscal matters. And one of the major things that any of the governors would be in charge of is making sure there's no rebellion and making sure that the proper tax revenue would be funneled into the king. And so you have uh, some checks and balances, and you have another uh, layer, the middle management, and then you have their vice presidents over them to make sure that all of the money is coming up to Cyrus. That's probably what it means, that no harm would come to the king. Daniel, it says in verse 3, was distinguished. He had an excellent spirit. 
Verse 4, the bureaucracy seeks to find a complaint against him. Okay, we don't like this guy. We're jealous of him. He's a big to-do. He's over us. He's an exile. He's a Jew. And we have to give an account to him. Surely there's got to be some dirt on him and they can't find anything. One commentator says, sort of tongue-in-cheek, the very first miracle in chapter 6 is that you have a blameless politician. This is maybe not fair. There's, I know many good Christians who seek to serve in that role. But here we have one, Daniel. He's blameless before them. And they have a certain jealousy, a racial and class bias is part of it, no doubt. Look at verse 13. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, you can almost hear them spit on the ground as they mention his name, one of those Jewish exiles, king, he pays no attention to you. And so they look to trick him and trap him, and they lie. Did you notice the lie in verse 7? All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, they're all agreed, king. All? Hmm, everyone? What about one of the three rulers that's in charge of all the satraps, one who the king wants to put in charge of the whole empire? What about him, Daniel? No, I don't think Daniel was asked about this scheme. See, this wouldn't be the first time or the last time when someone comes and says, now listen to me, everybody's talking about this. We all agree on this. Everyone thinks this one way. Really? Well, no, Daniel didn't. But as far as they were concerned, they talked to their friends and they talked to the people that they liked and that counted as all. Don't we do the same? Everybody knows this. Everybody thinks this way. Well, who's everyone? Well, me and my two friends that I talk to. Me and the other four people that sit around every Monday and complain about things over a cup of coffee. We all agree on it. Well, they say, all of us. And so they set up a trap for Daniel. Again, do you see the perpetual conflict between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We are on yet another king. We've had Nebuchadnezzar. We've had Belteshazzar. We've had Darius. Perhaps he's the same as Cyrus. At least our third king, and there are other kings who would have fallen in between those, but the third one mentioned, at least on the second kingdom from the Babylonians to the Persians, and still we have the same story. Don't think that a change of circumstances or a change of the cast of characters is always going to change your problems. It might have been tempting for Daniel to think, if only we could get another king in here. If only we could have a different empire. If only we could have the, get rid of the Babylonians and have somebody else in charge. If only we could win the next election. If only we could get a new boss. Well, sometimes those things do matter. But sometimes things are very much the same. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, 19 that the world, if it hated me, will hate you also? Sometimes that's the explanation. You say, well, if only we would have done that and we could have done this and if we had schemed here and if we had planned this. You know what? Sometimes the kingdom of darkness hates the kingdom of light. And so they scheme and they find a way to send aged Daniel 
to the lions. There's record of this among ancient peoples. Sometimes they would keep lions, not normally for punishment, but they would keep them so that they could hunt them for sport. They would maybe send them out or they would have them in some enclosed area. It was hardly much of a sport, sort of fish in a barrel, but it was a way for the kings or the royal officials to go and hunting these lions. And so there's record of people keeping them in some sort of stone pit like this. Speaks of him being lowered down. So there was some likely shallow den that he is lowered down and then a seal covering the top of the pits whereby it was assumed that this would be the end of Daniel. We have a foolish king, a jealous bureaucracy. Third, a faithful servant. A faithful servant. Now, living in the dispersion or in the exile would bring many new pressures to the Jews. It would have been hard to keep distinctive Jewish practices like the Sabbath or food laws or holy days or circumcision perhaps. And here we have the most central concern, idolatry and obedience to the first commandment. Remember that in Peter's letter, he says that we too are strangers and aliens We're living not like Israel in the promised land. We are living like exiles in Babylon. And yes, by God's grace, for a a, a lot of years in the history of this country, Christians and churches have had a rather privileged place. And it's still true to some extent, but I don't have to tell you how quickly that has changed and is changing. And we will be much more like strangers, aliens, exiles, dual citizens, citizens of an earthly land, and more importantly, citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And we will see increasingly that the two may be at odds with one another, and there will be pressures. We would be remiss if we did not note in this passage Daniel's unbending commitment to prayer. He's praying toward Jerusalem. This is not some sort of superstition. But rather in 1 Kings 8, Solomon there, the dedication of the temple, says that someday if we're in exile, we should pray looking back toward Jerusalem that God might have mercy upon us. So he's doing what he ought to have done as an exile, to remember, just like perhaps we look up as a gesture of our true home in heaven where we belong. So he would look out, I'm here in Babylon, my real home is in Jerusalem. I'm a stranger here in a strange land. And he would pray. What was he praying? Well, he was likely, at least in part, praying a prayer of confession for all the reasons his people got into this mess in the first place. Turn the page, a couple of pages, to Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He went back into Jeremiah's prophecy and he saw that we're going to be in exile 70 years. This must be coming to an end. And then he turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and made confession. So one of the things he's praying, looking out of his window three times a day, 
Perhaps he was praying imprecatory psalms on Babylon or here on Persia, but what we know he was praying in part was, Lord, have mercy on us. We're here because we deserve it. We're here because we've been sinful. Have mercy, restore us, return us to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And so he prays. It was such an unbending habit. Do you see verse 10? Verse 10 is amazing to me. It is quietly and in a very ordinary way, I think one of the most remarkable verses in this book and maybe in the whole Old Testament. When Daniel knew the document had been signed. Hey, so someone tells you, Christian, I just want you to know, did you hear the big news? Congress just passed a law. Yep, went through the House, went through the Senate, the President signed it. For 30 days, you're not allowed to pray. 30 days, you can't read your Bible. 30 days, you can't sing praises to your God. For 30 days, you only can make petitions to the President of the United States for 30 days. And you know that. And when he knew that, he went to his house. You don't, you don't have any sense of deliberation inner angst and turmoil. Oh no, what do I do? He went to his house where he had windows. Really, Daniel? Don't you have any spot in the house without windows? But apparently this is the way he always prayed, right? Facing Jerusalem. People must have known it. They knew Daniel did this. That's why they could develop the trap the way they did. They know it's clockwork three times a day. There he is out the window praying. So when Daniel heard it, he went to the upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And here's the key. As he had done previously. This was a well-worn discipline. So now when the crisis came, he would not be detoured. You ever think when you hear the stories of believers in prison or threatened with their lives for the cause of the gospel, and you think, what would I do? What would I be like? What would I have been like Corey Tinboom's father? What would I have been like Andrew Brunson who was in prison in Turkey, you hear these stories, and you remember that Jesus said, don't worry about what you'll say in that day, the Holy Spirit will help you. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit will help you, if it comes to you or to me, he will help you then through your faithfulness now. He simply was doing what he had always done. There are no little things and no small days. You say, well, I'm never going to be this person that they write about in books and movies, and you don't know. And we don't ask for it. We don't look forward to that. We're not hoping for that sort of persecution. But who's to say that your quiet, ordinary faithfulness every day is laying the groundwork that the Spirit will use in the very moment when the crisis comes that you will stand by your convictions. It's 
one commentator says, the real den was not with the lions, but was on his knees every day in his bedroom. The real danger is what we cannot see. He could see the lion's den. He knew that danger, but the real danger facing him was the loss of his own faith, that he would give up his habit of prayer and worship. The most tempting idol was surely not Darius, but Daniel's own comfort and security. I doubt there was any temptation that, well, Darius might really be God. No. Might there have been a temptation to think of his own preservation, his own life, his own comfort, his own security? That certainly would have been very tempting for me. Here's a question I read this week. Here's a convicting question. I find it convicting. Do you? What would change in your life? What would change in my life? What would change in the life of our church if we were forbidden from prayer for 30 days? If we're honest, many of us would say, I haven't prayed for 30 days. Or I kind of just pray here and there on the go when I'm in the car. That's great to pray when you're in the car. It's great to pray continually. But for many of us, if there was a decree that said, for 30 days you cannot pray, We wouldn't have to change much in our lives to be faithful to that decree. Daniel had such an unbending discipline. And prayer was a clear indication to anyone with the eyes to see that Daniel thought there was a higher king than Darius. That's why it was such an affront to their sense of superiority because for Daniel to get on his knees and look out the windows showed everyone, not only I'm not going to listen to your unrighteous rule, but there is a king higher than King Darius. He may be my friend. I may want to serve him well, but there's a higher king, and I'm going to pray to him. From King Nebuchadnezzar to Belteshazzar to King Darius the Mede, Daniel is still serving the king of kings. We read in verse 22 that God delivered him because he was blameless. That doesn't mean he was sinlessly perfect, but rather he passed the test. In this measure, he was blameless. And remember, he's a very old man. Do not assume, brothers and sisters, that you have already passed your biggest test that it came when you were in college or it came sometime earlier when you were in the workforce. No, no, no. It may be when you are nearing the very end of your life that you find the strongest temptation to abandon God or to bow down to your idols or to forget all that you've known and loved and the one you've really served. Here he was. You would think, surely God, not Daniel again. Way back when he was a young man with the food And through all of this with interpreting the dreams and speaking truth to power with Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar, he's an old man. He's 85 years old, but he had another test to pass. And he passed it, a faithful servant. Here's the fourth character, a mighty God. Now, we know it is Daniel in the lion's den, but it's ultimately God's story. Notice we hear almost nothing from Daniel. For most of the story, he's silent. 
we hear much more from the satraps and the prefects and their whole plan to trick him. He goes quietly into the den. We only hear from him when he survives and he gives praise to God. We don't hear much from Daniel. We don't hear anything from the lions. I thought about beginning the sermon with something about a trip to the zoo in years past or planet Earth or give you some interesting facts about lions that their pound per square inch on their bite is 600 pounds, which I found interestingly is actually relatively low in the animal kingdom. Better to be bitten by a lion than an American alligator, which is like 2,000 pounds per square inch. But I wouldn't want to be with the lions either. You ever heard those sermons about mounting up on wings like eagles and the pastor seemed to have spent most of his study on ornithology and eagles and what they were like and how, so I'm not gonna do that with lions. They're not the main character. There is a greater lion king. The depiction here is supernatural clearly, but it's not sensational. We aren't told all the things we would want to know if this were written as a novel or if this were a movie, the Bible isn't trying to give a, a movie. If we were watching this on the big screen, we'd want to have the music in the background. We'd want to know what the din was like and what it smelled like. And there's probably skulls in the corner and there's cobwebs over here. And the lions start doing this and roar, doing big, huge roars. We don't know any of that. The story's not about the lions. It's about God. You see in verse 25, and Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. God sends an angel like he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yes, Daniel is a hero. We are right to emulate him. He's in that hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11.33. But have you ever noticed in Hebrews, all we read is that some by faith stop the mouths of lions. Daniel doesn't even get a mention. And he's probably just fine with that. The focus is not on the people of faith, but on the God in whom they had faith. And though we may not face physical lions, we know 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Every single one of you are in danger because there's a devil and he means to harm you and he means to attack us and deceive us and tear us bone from bone, limb from limb. And so we must pray, lead us not to temptation, deliver us from the evil one, from that roaring, prowling lion. The point of the story is that God is great. And so once again, we end with a proclamation of praise to God. Have you noticed most of these stories end in the same way? Some pagan king praising the God of Israel. Chapter 247, the king answered and said to Daniel, this is Nebuchadnezzar, truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. Look at the end of chapter 3, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Verse 29, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against your God will be torn limb from limb. Or again in chapter 4, verse 34, we see the same thing. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised him. And here again at the end of chapter 6 in verses 25, 26, and 27, at the end of almost every one of these stories, we find some pagan king saying, you know what? Everyone prays that one's God. Now, whether they were truly born again, to use the New Testament language, it's hard to say, or whether they were just adding a God to their pantheon of gods and goddesses, we can't be sure, but they recognize that the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a God of great power and might. And we know that he is the only God. Psalm 138, verse 4, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. We have a great God. Now, I said there were five characters here. A foolish king, a jealous bureaucracy, a faithful servant, and a mighty God. And you're saying, all right, where's the fifth? Well, the fifth is a character that's yet to come, but is clearly foreshadowed here. The fifth character is the risen Christ. The story of Daniel sets the stage for the greater servant to come. Have you ever thought of all of the parallels between the story of Daniel 6 and the story of Christ? Christ would be the victim of a conspiracy against him. He would be betrayed by people close to him who found him threatening. They would say, we have no king but Caesar, just like they say, we have no king but you, O Darius. Like Daniel, Jesus would be arrested, where? In the place of prayer, in the garden of Gethsemane. The betrayers would eventually be punished with destruction, they and their children, 70 AD, when the temple in Jerusalem are overthrown. Here, more immediately, when those who laid the trap, they and their families, are thrown into the lion's den. The higher authorities found no fault in Jesus, just like Darius found no real fault in Daniel. And yet both Darius and Pilate would cowardly give in to those who were beneath them that they might save face. Jesus would be sealed in a tomb, just like Daniel, greeted by an angel, just like Daniel. And to the amazement of everyone, just like Daniel, Christ would be found alive, not the next day, but on the third day, when everyone assumed that he would be dead. We serve a God who raises the dead. Daniel experienced the power of the age to come. He experienced the lion and the lamb lying together. There's a reason that Many of the early Christians decorated their graves with the image of Daniel standing among the lions because it was seen as an image of resurrection. It was seen as a depiction of courage among 
those who might persecute them or force them into the world's mold. And it was seen as an image of triumph over the grave. You will face a test. It may not be as pronounced as a decree forbidding you to pray or to worship, but you will face a test. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't care if the place you work has Christians and your family has Christians and your school has Christians. Praise God for all of that. But if you're really following Jesus, there will come moments, small or big, where you will have to face the test. Do I give in? Do I close the curtains? Or do I keep on praying? Windows open, come and get me. You will face a test. Will you pass the test? Will you be promoted to glory? Will you look to the one who has already passed the test perfectly? Not Daniel, but the risen Lord Jesus Christ who was sealed behind the stone and on the third day rose again from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for the life of Daniel. We give thanks for your word. We give thanks for Jesus. We pray that we would be found faithful. Would you work in us these habits of the hearts and these habits of life that if and when the trial comes, it will be as fearful as we feel, as simple as doing the things we've always done. Lord, we wonder where we have not laid the foundation that we ought, where we have not been faithful. We wonder, perhaps to our own shame, if someone had to trick us or trap us with our Christian commitment, would they be able to do it? Would they know that we're always in church, that we're always in prayer, that we never watch those things, that we never say those words, that we never behave that way, that we never laugh at those jokes. Lord, would you move in us that we may be as unbending in our commitment to you as Daniel and give us faith most of all in the one whose righteousness was completely perfect and conquered the grave that we may not fear the one who roars and prowls like a lion. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.